The Longbox Crusade presents monthly Monday Movie Muckabout because the podcasting world needs another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I love movies. You all know this. I've got a large collection. I broke into the Longbox Crusade headquarters. They've got a large collection. It's a thing. There's just collections everywhere. Movies everywhere. Ha 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 ha. I love to find people who haven't seen a movie that I consider to be a classic and invite them on the show. And let me tell you guys, this week we got something special because this is a first, an absolute first. I don't have one guest. I've got two guests. But I think we all know them as really just one guest because it's Ruth and Darren Sutherland, the pop culture ambassadors extraordinaire. They run Rad Adventure Network's home of Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and they are friends to everyone and the nicest people you will ever meet. Ruth and Darren, how are you guys doing? Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I'm doing wonderful after hearing that amazing introduction. Oh, yeah. You, you shouldn't have said all that stuff about her. I, I'll be having to listen to her talk about herself for a week now. <laughs> oh, that's not too hard at all. No, I mean it. You guys are wonderful. I mean, we've, we've had a chance to talk before we started recording. Everybody knows who you are. You guys are wonderful, nicest people in the world. And you are lovers of movies, too, correct? Absolutely. Yes. Long time movie buffs. Yes. Yeah, I noticed on your Twitter account that you are always kind of mentioning movies that you've seen or even saying oh here's some movie star that we love that we've hunted down and got an <laughs> autograph from and you guys do a lot with all kinds of pop culture but it's a movie show so we should talk about your love of movies i think you mentioned to me that there's a movie theater nearby your house correct yes the carolina theater is a wonderful independent theater it's over 90 years old and they focus on showing only new independent films and classic films. So every Friday night is retro double feature where we get two movies that are classics from, you know, anywhere from the 40s, maybe into the 80s. This is about as far as they go. It's just fantastic to go and see those wonderful movies with an audience. And in addition to that, they usually have a film festival at least once a quarter. We've seen Alfred Hitchcock Film Festival's there, James Bond Film Festival's there. Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen Film Festival's there. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki Film Festival's, Akira Kurosawa Festival's. So it's a fabulous theater. It's really the only theater we go to. It's wonderful. I am really jealous because I think I would go to any one of those festivals in a heartbeat. I think we've had films from most of those. Well, they've not the Harryhausen one yet. But I mean, we've had films from most of those people on this show so far. So that is really awesome. And I'm very, very jealous. But you guys have seen tons and tons of films, right? We have. We have, yeah. I mean, We're both, uh, we used to consider ourselves really serious film buffs who would try to see anything and everything that, you know, we had heard good things about. As we've gotten a little older, we get a little more discriminating and we really just like to stick with the genres we love the most. But we we seek out the movies that are, are well regarded in the genres that we like and yeah, we, we have movie nights more than one night a week. That's for sure. <laughs> I I started to laugh there because uh, I thought, you know, you guys are getting more discerning in your taste. And I'm still a youngster. And I, I love to just, you know, be very random and crazy with my selections. <laughs> oh, you want me to see an experimental film? Sure. This is horrible. Why are you doing this to me? But nah, I'm, I'm not going to do that to you guys now. I bet you guys both want to know what movie I would like you to watch, correct? Oh, absolutely. We've been very intrigued. It was fun coming up with a list of movies we haven't seen because what we did is we said, okay, what are our favorite genres? And we went through and we we did some research. It's like, what are some of the best films in these genres? And look for ones that we haven't 
seen. And it was a bit of a challenge because, you know, we've seen a lot of movies. (laughs) So, but we found, you know, a couple of movies in every genre we like. And we thought, you know, this will be fun. Whatever Rick chooses is going to be fun to see. So we're looking forward to it. It'll be fun to see what you choose. Well, I think you guys did it right because that's what I always advise people when they give me a list. Peek behind the curtain. I don't just randomly choose a movie. I I can't do that to some of my guests, but I give them, have them give me a list of movies that they have never seen that are on a list. So they've got a little bit of choice in it. They just don't, don't know what the final pick is. But I think you guys did it right. You find exactly the genre and the type of films, and then you do a little research to see which ones haven't you found from those best of lists. With that selection, I went out, looked at it, and said, you know what? I think it's time for you guys to finally see from 1946, The Postman Always Rings Twice. Ah. The film noir based on the 1934 novel of the same name by James M. Kane. So, what do you know about this film? I know the title. I have heard the title, you know, parodied or, you know, in out there in pop culture over the years. And it's like, I know that's a thing. It's a book. It's a movie. wonder what that's about. But that's as far as I got. <laughs> I know a little bit more about it than Ruth does because film noir is one of my all-time favorite genres. I've watched any and every film noir I really get a chance to. And when I was growing up, where I got my love of film noir and where I got my love of gothic horror, uh, the Hammer Horror films that I love so much, were from Saturday and Sunday matinees. The, those the TV channels in the broadcast area where I lived. You know, Saturday and Sunday matinees, you'd get film noir, you'd get gothic horror. I came to love those genres, and most of them I've seen. And it's interesting, The Postman Always Rings Twice is one of those movies I always heard of. It must have just never gotten syndicated or shown during that time. And then later on, when you know we, we grew up and had money and had a, did a video collection... It was one of those things where, you know, you're having to be discerning. You only have a limited amount of fun. So, your movie fun, you sort of like, oh, yeah, no, I know I love that movie. I want to get that one. And it, it was always one that it's like, ah, I want to see that, but I'll pass on it right now. And we just never got around watching it, unbelievably. So, you know it's a film noir, but do you guys know anything else about the film at all? Uh, I know Lana Turner's in it. Uh, yep. I was going to say, I mean, I know on the broad strokes of what the plot is, and I'm aware that it's, you know, been adapted several times, but I have not seen any of the adaptations of The Postman Always Rings Twice, so... Well, this is good then. This is good. I think you guys are going to go into it a little bit blind to it. I mean, you guys have an understanding of the film noir background, and we've done many film noirs on this show. But I think we should just step back for a moment, listen to the trailer from 1946's The Postman Always Rings Twice, and give this lovely couple a chance to sit down and watch the film. We'll see you after the trailer. Well, you suggested it yourself once, didn't you? I was only joking. Were you? Yes, I was. 
Or had you started to think about it a little? Maybe I said it, but I didn't really mean it. Well, I say it again now, and I do mean it. Frank, Frank, listen to me. I'm not what you think I am. I've made a big mistake in my life, and I've got to be this way just once to fix it. They hang you for a thing like that. Oh, but not if you do it right. And you're smart, Frank. You'll think of a way. Plenty of men have. He never did any harm to me. But, darling, can't you see how happy you and I would be together here without him? <laughs> Waiting a long time for that kiss. <laughs> when we get home, Frank, then there'll be kisses. The kisses with dreams in them. Kisses that come from life, not death. I hope I can wait. And we are back. All right. I hope you had an opportunity to revisit this classic, classic movie. But if you did not, that's okay. I'm here to handle it. I've got a nice little quick synopsis of the film before we get back into actually talking to the wonderful people on the show, the Sutherlands. Frank is a wanderer. He has never found a place that he has felt comfortable, always preferring the road at least until he wanders into the Twin Oaks Diner. It is a little roadside place owned by a friendly, older, homely gentleman named Nick and his much younger and very attractive wife, Cora. Instantly, Nick falls for the wife, and eventually they make a plan to run away. Cora quickly learns that she does not like the road. She wants her restaurant. The alternate plan is to get rid of Nick. The first attempt fails. Nick survives, and the two start to get some unwanted attention from the law. The second attempt, a botched car over the cliff stunt, successfully kills Nick, but injures Frank. The two are detained, and Nick is tricked into confessing. A spry lawyer manages to turn the tables on the DA, and the two are released. But now they have a secret that forces them to stay together. Who will turn first? All right. Darren, Ruth, what did you think about The Postman Always Rings Twice? What was your first impression of it? You know, I guess for me, loving film noir the way I do, my first impressions were this is very familiar. This is, you know, comfort food for me because this is why I like film noir. All of the, you know, the black and white filming, the wonderful cinematography, the atmosphere and the mood. It's just all of those things that I love about film noir. So it was right there. And my first impressions were like, yes, this is what I was hoping for and expecting. I enjoyed it. I certainly found myself looking out for the artistic approach and sort of the small, subtle things that they did to convey messages about, you know, evil or good or what's going on with the plot. And I really appreciate getting to step way back in time and think about the history. Like we're seeing a bit of history and thinking about for its time, you know, what had come before it and what it was doing was very significant. Yeah. Very revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I agree. What about your expectations? You went into this knowing a little bit about this, yeah, I think if I'm correctly, I think you had read the book. 
it was one of those things where I, I had always heard of this movie and being a film noir fan, it was a movie I always expected to see. And it, it's just one of those, I guess, as I was growing up, it just didn't get rerun or didn't show up for me to get a chance to see like I expected. And then later on, I just never got around to searching it out. So it, it was familiar in that I guess I had heard enough about it or seen clips here or there that I sort of knew the basic plot and idea for the film, but I hadn't read the book and I didn't really know what to expect fully with the movie. And it definitely had some twists and turns that I didn't expect. What about you, Ruth? Well, I was expecting the postman to show up at some point, <laughs> um, but I had to come across it in popular culture, you know, so knew the title, kind of got a sense of, you know, the stars that were in it, but really had not connected or known what to expect as far as the plot. So I just sat down, you know, kind of blank and ready to see what would in, unfold for me. And I would, I enjoyed it. So it, it met that expectation because I knew it had survived for so many decades that it must be significant. There must be, you know, value in it. And I could see that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. Let's dive right into this then. Let's not drive off the cliff. Let's, <laughs> let's stay away from that. But let's, let's at least dive into the film. What are some of the highs that you had from the film? What was there a scene that each of you had that really stuck out in your minds as far as something you really enjoyed? I would say for me, just some of the chemistry with the lead characters and their introductions, their arrivals, like how did they arrive? How did they walk into the room? And what statement was being made with that, I found very fascinating. So just that introduction of Frank, you know, arriving after hitchhiking, the introduction of Cora as she, you know, steps in the room wearing, as she mostly did, white clothes and just making an impression. I think for me, it's with film noir, one of the things that I always look for is the cinematography. I love black and white film and, uh, you know, film noir always really did a wonderful job of taking advantage of black and white. The thing with film noir is it was made, most film noir movies were made during a period of time when other movies were being made in color, but mm -hmm. these types of movies were generally still made in black and white. And it was for a couple of reasons. One thing is that they generally had smaller budgets because they weren't generally expected to be as mainstream. So they weren't going to pull in as big an audience. So they had smaller budgets, which meant they used black and white film. But for me, that was always terrific because the directors and the cinematographers always look to use shadow and light. And that's such an integral part of film noir. It's why those movies look the way they do. And I think why they've stood the test of time, the black and white aspect of them is part of the storytelling. And for me, that's the, those were the highs of this movie. Again, like is so often the case because the use of shadow and light, black and white, and just the cinematography and angles that creates that sort of slightly off kilter and slightly distorted story element that is film noir was clearly evident. So those were highs to me, the cinematography. I, I like what you both said because you both were pointing out a couple of facets that I think played off each other really well. You know, you enjoy Ruth, you enjoyed how the people entered the room and their presence in the room. And I think that's also influenced a lot by the thing Darren was saying that the black and white definitely helped because of the style of the film, because of the film noir, and the way that the director was using those elements, that's really what sold it. 
as far as the storyline goes, the storyline is straightforward to a point. They put a couple of twists and turns in there, but it's it's very classic. Guy wants to be with woman, wants to knock off the man, get the woman, get some money too. It's all about sex and money. That's what life is about here. <laughs> yes, it is. So, so you've got a very straightforward plot, but you have to build it up with those elements that you're talking about. How are the characters introduced? How do we use the light and shadow to our advantage? And I'm always fascinated by what they had to do to really sell the black and white. So what were the characters wearing in order for it to pop as white or to pop as gray or to pop as black mm -hmm. and how to use the shadows to go with it? So mm -hmm. I really appreciate what you both were saying about that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Cora because you were mentioning how Cora is dressed in white and she's always very striking. She is the femme fatale. She is the object of affection. We are going through the entire story with Frank's eyes, but his eyes are always turned to Cora at the beginning. What did you think about Lana Turner playing Cora Smith? What did you think about her role and her character and her performance? Oh, I think excellent performance. Like she delivered what needed to be there for this story and this character. So totally on target and really the presence she just carried it off so well yeah i mean she is the perfect femme fatale i mean that's another thing film noir always has to have is a femme fatale and she is you know the perfect definition of one because she's beautiful to look at which is always you know it's like the femme fatale is always gorgeous she's always alluring she's always attractive so she has all that surface beauty but as is so often the case in film noir, that's just on the surface. What's underneath is not at all beauty. It's not at all alluring. It's, it's completely the opposite. And she plays that perfectly because as you hear her talk and you see her expressions and you see her, her moods and her thoughts, you see that other side that's different from what you're seeing on the outside. Very ambitious, very calculating. Which is always interesting, too, because she is with a very, like I described, a homely man. Mm. He is not a good man to look at. He's a very nice man. He's very friendly. He's the nice guy. Mm -hmm. He finally ended up with this beautiful woman. But she is working as a cook, as a dishwasher. It almost seems like her... Uh, pardon the phrase, but assets are wasted in the role that she is in. And it doesn't seem, it seems like this position that she's at in life is beneath what she looks like and how she presents herself. What did you, did you guys think about that at all? Or Oh, that's true. You know, she, you know, had the classy all together look, but she would have to be flipping burgers and washing dishes and bussing tables. So yes, good contrast that you're pointing out there. Yeah. And that's exactly how she feels about her situation too. I mean, she during the course of the movie, she tells Frank, you know, how she ended up married to him. And it's basically he was the good, kind man who took care of her sometime in the past when she was in a difficult situation. And uh, she appreciated that. But she realizes that that's put her in a position now where she is not at all what she wants to be. She wants to be what she looks like, which is mm -hmm. powerful and attractive to other people and rich and wealthy and and she wants it all as easily as possible she thinks she deserves it all as easily as possible because she knows exactly what she wants but what i love about this movie is every time she and or frank figure out what they need to do and they start doing it they both realize they don't really want to go to all that trouble and effort it's like they want it to be handed to them <laughs> yeah yeah 
I would agree with that. Frank is looking for the next easy thing. He's looking for that that perfect thing that he's going to be happy with. And Cora, I mean, yes, she's flipping burgers, but she's got a nice life. She's got a very comfortable life. I mean, mm. we can only aspire to be to have what she has. A husband that cares for her, a little business that that's their own, nice location near the beach. It's wonderful. It's idyllic, but then it's not quite what she wants. And especially when she's finally given somebody who can provide more. I- I'm going to leave it up to you. Who do you want to talk about next? We can talk about Frank. We can talk about Nick. I mean, they both are the next characters in the story. Uh, you know, that's interesting. I-, I guess part of me wants to talk about Nick next because talking about her makes me think of, you know, we're talking about what she wants. Mm-hmm. And one of the scenes I really love at the beginning of this movie is when, you know, he shows up. Frank shows up at the gas station and there's a sign in the window. And it's to me, it's particularly telling because it doesn't say help wanted. It says man wanted. Mm-hmm. So and it's interesting. It means that, yes, Nick, who owns the diner in the gas station, is wanting to hire someone to help. But it's also man wanted because she, Cora, wants a different man than she has. So, yeah, I, I love that part. And I'm sure that that was intentionally, that particular phrase was chosen for that reason. And I love the way that sort of comes in because Frank comes into the movie first and we meet all the other characters through him. And uh, I really like the way he comes in and and that sign is there. Nick is such a kind and sympathetic character. Like he can play music and smile and just be so trusting and friendly to everyone. So yeah, he. I mean, he is genuinely kind and genuinely naive. <laughs> you spend a lot of the movie almost waiting for a shoe to drop. Mm. Okay, what is so bad about this guy? Mm. He drinks a bit. Mm. Okay, but even when he drinks, he's even more friendly and more gregarious. So it's it's not like he's drinking and becoming violent. It's just that he drinks and he drinks a little too much. But. <laughs> He's, he's, he's a happy drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> and he's often happy. <laughs> this is true. But, but we're looking at this character and what's wrong with him? You know, what is the bad thing about him? I think the bad thing about him is he's continuously bad choice in making friends. Mm-hmm. First with his wife and then with Frank. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about C- how Cecil Kellaway played the character? Good job, in my opinion. Like, believable, came across in the role very well. I I think he plays this role the way it needs to be played for this movie, because he's the polar opposite of Frank and Cora. And I think, you know, he makes that very clear in some level. You could maybe say compared to the other actors in this, maybe his character is a bit more two dimensional. I would definitely say, yes, it's a little more two dimensional, but I think it's intentionally two dimensional because we're seeing a person who is on the inside what they are on the outside and you know it's like the what you see and hear from him is what he is inside too so i i think it's fine the way it is and i like the way the character of nick comes off and uh, you feel sympathy for him and and at the same time he's his own worst enemy because i mean (laughs) basically he he foreshadows the story to come because very early on his wife's wanting to dance with him and he's like no you don't want to dance with me dance with frank and uh, so he basically gives his wife away symbolically very early in the movie. So he's his own worst enemy. It's interesting that you mentioned that the two-dimensional characters, because I think that, especially with a film noir, we tend to see a lot of grays in characters. But 
on many cases, everybody in this movie is pretty much black or white. Mm -hmm. There's very few gray in any of the characters. You either see that they're good, or when you finally get to know them, like a few of the lawyers, you find out, you know what? They're actually not good. They're <laughs> they're actually all in it for themselves. There's very there there isn't really a character that plays the gray on a, on a, on this film. Let's we we danced around him. Let's go ahead and bring him into the picture. John Garfield as the lead, as the eyes of the audience, Frank, and he is in pretty much every scene because. It's all his story that we're hearing. He comes in at the beginning and, and we are following his journey as he is a wanderer, as he finds his way to this little gas station slash uh, restaurant. And he finds his way into the Smith's household and into Mrs. Smith's bed. What did you think about this character and just how John Garfield came across as playing somebody so oily? <laughs> Convincing to me. So... I think he did a good job of showing how he does have itchy feet. You know, it's hard for him to be satisfied or settled down and that he's often able to manipulate situations to get what he wants. Like he says, he could sell anybody, anything. He's got some of that power of persuasion that I'm sure he's used to, to his advantage over time. <laughs> um, uh, so convincing to me. Yes. Yeah. He does a great job in the role because he, as you said, he's the, protagonist in this movie he's not the hero by any stretch mm -hmm. but the protagonist definitely we see and hear everything from his point of view and he's very convincing he's not at all likable but uh, he is convincing and you still feel sympathy for him along the way you identify with him from time to time and i i credit both the script and his performance for that because if he didn't carry that character off it would be easy to say, you know, I don't want to spend an hour and 50 minutes with this character, but mm -hmm. you are happy to spend an hour and 50 minutes with this character, even though you don't necessarily like him. Right. It's almost like you want to find out, you know, there's a sticky end coming. You want to know how he's going to get there and you want to know what he did to do it. And you want to be rooting against him the entire time, which is part of the film noir aspect as well. Mm hmm. Now, there's a whole list of, of other characters that kind of weave in and out of the film, but there's a couple of really enjoyable ones. And I want to throw this out there before I see anything else. Is there any certain person that stuck out in your mind that you're like, hey, that sounds familiar? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Ruth has known I've been wanting to talk about this since we started recording because, I mean, <laughs> Lana Turner is fantastic. John Garfield is fantastic. They're the, they're the leads and they are perfect in this movie but oh my goodness hume cronin stills this movie even though he isn't in it very much i mean <laughs> mm -hmm. he is amazing from the first time he comes on screen until the last time he's on screen he he just fills the screen and it's like you see his performance you know in his expressions and in his dialogue and it's just like he he like all the others it's like he's not a good character, really. Not at all. But my goodness, he stills this movie for me. I'm just, when he was on screen, I was just like, oh, I've got to back up and I've got to hear that again. So he does a great job. How about for you, Ruth? Was there anybody else who stood out in the secondary cast? Oh, I would say the defense attorney as well. So and I liked that that's oh, the district attorney. The district attorney, sorry. Mm -hmm. The district attorney is the one actually who gave Frank the ride into town mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and little did he know 
they would end up crossing paths multiple times or be followed by him. So I really liked how that role played out. You know, yeah. it's him knowing something was up and just knowing something was wrong and pursuing it. So yeah. interesting character and good performance. He really is the the genuine good guy in this movie mm-hmm. because you know, we talked about uh, Nick and, you know, he's, he's a really nice guy, but at the same time, yes, like you mentioned his drinking uh, Rick and, mm-hmm. and, and he gets behind the wheel of his car when he drinks. So it's like, he's not perfect. And he, he makes it dis- time, different place. Different you know? time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And then, but then he also, you know, he makes unilateral decisions about what's mm-hmm. going to be done with the, with the restaurant, the cafe, you know, where they're going to move, where they're going to live, what he's going to make Cora spend the rest of her life doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The district attorney is genuinely good all the way through and also smart because yes. he is never fooled by Frank or Cora from the very beginning. It's like it, it's everything was against them because he's the person that gives Frank a ride into town. And from the very beginning, you could just tell he knew to keep an eye on this guy and mm-hmm. he uh, yeah, all the way through the movie, he is really compelling too. And, and that's Leon Ames who plays the district attorney, Kyle Sackett, yes. which is a fantastic name there. I'm surprised that neither of you mentioned one of my favorite bit parts in this. And that was played by the lawyer's uh, secondhand man, oh. his bouncer, his thug. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and that was a, uh, the character was Ezra Kennedy played by Alan Reed. Yeah. You may not know that name because you may not be paying attention to the credits on the cartoons you watched as a kid, but that is the voice of Fred Flintstone. And every time he talked, I'm like, Fred Flintstone's a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good one. I'm glad you brought that up. I, you know, I think we noticed that the first time we watched it when we were uh, reading the cast list and everything, and, you know, when we rewatched it a second time before coming back on your show, it's I didn't even think about it again. So, yes, thank you for reminding us of that. Yeah, he he plays investigator who works for the lawyer. He goes out and he ends up using the information that he had when he was working for the lawyer to go out and blackmail Frank and Cora. But he wants to blackmail them after they have successfully knocked Nick off and just his way that he kind of throws his weight around. He thinks he controls the situation and then quickly realizes he do- he doesn't. But I think it's another great little bit part in here. And it's just, it's hard to look at, at the entire scene without thinking, wow, that's Fred Flintstone. That's the voice of Fred Flintstone. It's, it's just completely distracting. me. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that scene up again, because it is a terrific scene. The way you see him turn from thinking he's in charge to being the whimpering little guy, you know, uh-huh. beat up in the corner, you know, he's big uh-huh. and he ends up being, you know, beat up in the corner and it, whimpering. And uh, it's a, fantastic performance and instantly turns on his friends too (laughs) instantly i mean you see you see frank and cora they're like you know i'm not going to tell you anything i'm not going to give you the money i'm not going to tell you anything and then the moment he's down he he gives up his mother it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) you've talked about all the great things about this movie but is there anything that that didn't strike you or is there anything that you found a little too old or doesn't really hold up well, or just anything that bothered you about the film at all. Oh, I was focused so much on what I enjoyed. I don't (laughs) recall anything that drug it down for me. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. I mean, it's, I didn't find any point in the movie where I was 
bored or disappointed or thought, oh, I wish they hadn't done that like you sometimes do with movies. I mean, it was like you said earlier, it might have been a little bit more on point and, you know, headed mm-hmm. toward what you might have expected with a few little twists. Maybe it didn't have as many big ones as might have been expected, but there wasn't any time I was disappointed. I mean, for instance, one of the things I even loved is another thing we talked about with film noir and their smaller budgets. So many film noir movies are filmed just on sets. You're just Mm -hmm. on claustrophobic sets, even for street scenes. This movie goes out and films on location much more than a typical film noir. So I even love that. I don't really ever feel I... I felt let down because even once you get past the court scenes, even, and you sort of get to the aftermath of that, it keeps you on the edge of your seat because of how the characters change in their dynamics and how they deal with each other. So, so nothing there, but I'm interested in hearing you, Rick, as a longtime fan of this, do you have a part that's disappointing? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think that there are, I mean, there are times watching a film like this, especially with modern eyes and mm. a modern sensibility, mm-hmm. that you kind of are like, mm. okay, it's plotting a bit. We're seeing a lot of things that could be shortcutted out. You mm. know, they've, they've got very long scenes, mm. which it's like, okay, I get it. I know what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the next scene. But beyond that, and, th- and that's a plotting issue that a lot of older films are, are depending upon the decade the film was out in, when that was lo- sometimes the longer drawn out scenes were in vogue. Mm. And nowadays it's like, we get it. But even some of the older movies, you see that sometimes and that can drag and that can be some of the things that doesn't always fit in today's sensibilities. But no, I, I I enjoy looking at a lot of the older films and asking certain questions like, you don't see any seatbelts in cars and everybody mm-hmm. always gets out on the one side and not the <laughs> other side. And, you know, and, 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 and little things like that, which is just like, oh, that's always just fascinating why they do that. But then also, I always found, I also find this movie fascinating with the extravagant lengths that they go to in order to get away with the perfect crime. Mm. I'm going to be outside and I'm going to set this up over here and I'm going to make sure that, you know, I warn you in case you do so many steps that you all of a sudden realize, Hey, you know, if you just cut out about three or four of these steps, it would be a lot easier <laughs> and you, you aren't going to set yourself for failure, but you know, you have to, we have to go a little bit further out. We're going to do this. We're going to get him drunk. We're going to push the car down. Oh, it's got to be. An- <laughs> And you find, and everything that they do is so convoluted that it's amazing they don't get caught even sooner. They don't make the best partners in crime. No, no they don't. <laughs> they're bad at this. They are just bad at this. And the thing is, is they should have been able to figure that out because everything goes wrong for them at every step. Yeah. You know, from the very first, from him being driven into town by the district attorney uh, yeah. at, to every little thing, like with the cat and the ladder and uh, the, the, the cat, the cat <laughs> electrocuting himself as they're trying to commit a crime in front of a cop. <laughs> Give it up. You are bad at this. Just let it go. That's, that's, right. that's God telling you, you're not doing it today. So, you're not doing it ever. So in the end, <laughs> they definitely deserve to get caught because they had every chance to say, you know, we shouldn't do this. No, no, no. These are not the brightest tools in in the chef's shop, uh, in the kitchen. There we go. They're not the tools, sharpest tools in the kitchen. And and the Um, thing is, is they they really sort of deserve each other, too, because they don't 
trust even each other for a half a second. I mean, I just, I love when, when she goes away to visit her mother, her sick mother. And I mean, the train hasn't even pulled away from the station before Frank hits on someone else. I mean, the two of them have absolutely no reason to be together. So it's just like when they turn on each other later on, it's just like, yeah, didn't you figure this out early on? (laughs) Not only hits on somebody else, but successfully hits on somebody else. (laughs) And goes off to Mexico with them. He doesn't even go back home. Comes <laughs> just back in time. Jeez, please. I want to circle back a bit because you were talking about the sets. And, and mm. I know it's cliche to say the set was another character in the film. But mm. it really is in this case because the majority of it takes place on this little plot of land where they have the kitchen, the, the restaurant and the gas station. And you've got this scene here. And so the the movie is really centered on what this represents. This represents the beautiful home that this couple has. It represents their little business. It also represents the prison that they're stuck in together mm-hmm. and that she's stuck in. And then you also see how their fame, their infamy, all of a sudden brings more revenue because more people come, which is a good thing. You know, first she's like, nobody ever comes here. And then too many people are coming here. What do you want? So it it's a part of the movie too. Mm-hmm. It's a very deep part of the movie. How did and I think you've already said it too. You you liked that we were outside and we saw close to the ocean, beautiful rural area. I don't know if you guys want to talk a little bit more about that at all. Or I know I do because one of the things with that set where they are located, and I really love the way you just mentioned it's also you know their prison because boy, mm-hmm. what a perfect comment that is, Rick. I hadn't thought of that at all, and as soon as you said it, my you know a light bulb went on. It's just like oh, absolutely, that's right. That's symbolic too. One of the things that I like the most about it is even the sign related to the location, because it's like when when Frank arrives, it's got this old style sign painted, it's wearing out, and it's basically Nick. And then the sign gets replaced after Frank arrives with this flashy neon sign, which represents Cora, because I mean, that's really, you know, she wants to be this flashy light that brings people in. And I, I just love that. And it is exactly what you're talking about with that set where they are, because it's their work and it's their home. And it's it's the place where they interact and where they try to hide. And then all oh, your comment about it also being their prison, it's everything. It absolutely is integral to the movie and uh, is such an important part. So I, I agree with what you're saying. What, were you, what do you think, Ruth? I enjoy with everything you were both saying. And I guess scene-wise, the other scenery that I could add would be the beach scenes. So I enjoyed Mm -hmm. them actually going out to the ocean, you know, filming at night and the, you know, roads. Yeah, they keep going out to the beach at night. It's really weird. It's like, I'm going to drive down to the beach. It's like, it's dark out. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I have to wait until they close up shop. Uh And then then they come back and and Nick is there and he's, it's completely dark out. You hear the crazy crickets and he says, well, you're back sooner than I expected. (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting you to be out frolicking and, you know, doing other things on the beach. Obviously. <laughs> the beach is an interesting scene or is an interesting set because whereas the house is the prison, the beach is truly where they love each other. Mm-hmm. And it's that's where even if they go out there mistrusting each other, mm-hmm. they always come back in mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. And that happens at the beginning and happens, I think, in the middle and definitely happens at the end where, mm-hmm. I mean, they are ready to end it all. And mm-hmm. they go to the beach and like, you know what? We still love each other. We mm-hmm. still love each other. Mm-hmm. And then everything falls apart as they crash. Yes, yes. The irony of all that, uh, you know, just like you're mentioning at the crash at the end. I mean, that's 
that's a really nice part of this movie. I shouldn't say the word nice, but that's a part of this movie that I really liked the irony involved, which is just the relation where Cora is involved in killing her husband uh, through a car crash, only then to later die herself in a car crash. And then Frank is guilty of, you know, killing her husband, but in the end is gets away with that, but is found guilty of, of killing her, which he didn't mm-hmm. do. It's just, you know, that's again, perfect film noir material, which is the irony of getting away with the crime you did to be punished for the crime you didn't do. And, and I just love the, that closing scene when, you know, the attorney's telling him, the district attorney saying, you know, even if you get away with this, we, we've got you for the other. So why bother? Just pay for it. And this brings us to probably the most baffling part about the, this entire film is the title of the movie. The postman always <laughs> rings twice and you don't, you don't get it until the end and it passes by so quick at the end. You almost miss it. But what they're talking about is that it, it's fate. Fate rings twice. The postman rings twice to make sure that you can get the mail. Fate rings twice to make sure it can get you. So he didn't go to jail the first time for killing Cora's husband, but he does get it for her dying and then thinking that he murdered her. What did you What did you think about the the lovely title and the wrapping up at the end there, Ruth? I appreciated that he had enough insight to see that and to come to a point where he knew that he deserved punishment for doing wrong. And yet, at the same time, he's you know he's begging for forgiveness at the end. You know, basically in the afterlife, will she know that I didn't do it intentionally? And, and can I meet her? <laughs> and can can I- we be here? Can we be together? Can we be together still. Oh. <laughs> that would just be horrible. To, or or. Or it may be the absolute just desserts. Hey, we get to be together forever. We're in hell, aren't we? We're in hell. It is, uh, like you mentioned, you know, Ruth jokingly said at the beginning, you know, she kept waiting for the postman to show up. And it is interesting, like you said, Rick, you know, the, it comes in, that title reference comes in right at the very end to mm-hmm. the point that he even has to explain what he means to the district attorney because it's like he realizes in his mind what's happened. But he has to explain it to them because they didn't get what he meant by what do you mean? They always ring twice. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, wow. So this is where the title comes from, because like I said, I, I, I had this vague idea of what the movie was about. But for the title not to be revealed until basically one of the last lines in the movie was really interesting. Very interesting. (laughs) Well. As we start wrapping up, let me just ask you guys, is there anything else we want to touch on or anything else that you have left in your notes that you want to mention about this film before we rate it? You know, I think I've mentioned everything that I I think I wrote down. I took so many notes. It's like I have notes all <laughs> over the place right here. So I'm never going to see if I mentioned them all or not. But I, I think that I talked about the things that were most important to me. And it's such a, a great movie. You can't cover everything anyway. No, no. Same for me. I don't have anything else to add, but totally enjoyed the conversation because I feel like it really helps you appreciate the movie more in depth when you talk about it with friends. And it's so nice, Rick. I mean, that's why this is such a fantastic podcast idea that you had, because, you know, what a great idea that you get to experience with your friends, a movie that you love that they get to experience for the first time. And you get to share that conversation. What a terrific idea for a podcast. So thank um, you very much. I, yeah. I, I enjoy this. Oh yeah. And it's easy to, to understand why yeah, and we're so happy we got to be part of it. it it's a lot of fun. I, I wanted to find a way that I could sit down with my friends. Cause I do miss doing that where I could sit down with my friends and say, Hey, 
I want to show you a movie. Let's talk about it. And I can't do that all the time with people because y'all live too far away. (laughs) (laughs) And, and even with my close friends, it's like, you know, time or whatever families. So this is a nice way to do it. And it, and it works pretty well. I think Mm, it works pretty well. But I have one, well, I got a couple more final questions, but this is the big one. The big one. How many full bags of popcorn would you give this film? One, two, five. How much did you enjoy this? I'm going to give it four. So really hit the marks in so many ways. Very enjoyable. Really appreciate what went into the film. So four bags. And I, I like so much, Rick, that you always say no halvesies because that's the way I am too. It's like, if, <laughs> if you're going to rate a movie, you have to yourself decide, is it this or that? It, it's fine. You know, I don't mind seeing halves when they're averaging, you like when a site's mm-hmm. averaging out all the different ratings, but you don't rate a half. That's just cheating. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, you know, it's a long box crusade. We got rules that we got to go on here. You know, <laughs> we, We've been on their shows too, so we know how that goes. But uh, I, I've said the same thing to them before too. For me, I'm going to say four as well, because mm-hmm. I mean, the, this movie was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It delivered what I want from a film noir uh, easily, you know, giving it four stars. I wouldn't give it five because that's the Maltese Falcon. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I I would agree. And, I, and I'm right there with you guys on the four. I think that this is a classic movie. There's a reason why it has stood the test of time. It's yes. got a lot to offer. And I re- highly recommend people watch it. Absolutely. It, it's, it, it's a perfect movie. I'm so glad you chose this one from the list that we gave you because it was terrific. And we're really happy that we got to see it for the first time and share it with you. I'm glad that you guys were here too. Uh, before we go though, because I think that everyone enjoyed talking to you. I know I always enjoy talking to you and seeing you, but where <laughs> can the people on the internet find out where they can hear your lovely, lovely voices? You should check out Rad Adventures Network, and you might figure it out that Rad, R-A-D, is short for Ruth and Darren. So that's that's right. RadAdventuresNetwork.com uh, if you want to go to the website or just look it up on your podcast uh, app on your phone or uh, even on YouTube. We're at Rad Adventures Network on YouTube, so you can get all of our different podcasts there. We do have different podcast feeds for people that like just a specific show, but please come over to Rad Adventures Network. That'll give you a chance to sample a variety of our shows. And I highly, highly recommend it. They have made me converts of Trekker through their Trekker talk shows. So check that out. You can find me on Twitter at mmuckabout or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with Jeff the best roadside cook I ever tried to kill. <laughs> if you would like to be on this show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick present all one word at gmail.com. Big thank you to the Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this gorgeous attic of theirs. I promise, I promise, I promise I won't try to kill Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I would also like to suggest that if you like what you're hearing on this network or you like the Longbox Crusade, you can go ahead and help support them by going on over to Patreon and searching for the Longbox Crusade on Patreon. Now, that's all the time we have for this week. Please grab some popcorn and pull up a seat. We will be back soon with another episode. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at JoeSefflin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-99.